0: Terror is homegrown. Join us as we take a drive down dusty back roads and discover the obscure and dark history of this country, human and otherwise, that lurk in your backyard.
1: 17 of State of Fear Podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and with me, as always, every single damn week, is my good friend, James. What's up, James?
0: What's up, Chris? How y'all doing out there, folks?
1: Man, I hope everybody's doing well, staying safe out there. So, as we said, today's episode is on Kentucky, and the topic for tonight is the Mantel UFO incident, which is one of, uh, I believe, one of only a few involving the death of a pilot chasing ufo we're not talking about kfc no kfc you know that is strange it is scary but uh (laughs) we'll leave that to the health food podcast amen to that amen but uh all right before we do that let's uh go ahead and get to the uh weird news of the week why not let's just jump right into it do it man what you got for us
0: The, the title of this article, this caught me right off the bat. I love this one. This is not, like I said, this is not another scary one, Yeah, but it is unusual. It is quite. It, unusual. it is yes. quite weird. Yes. The title of the article is Virginia Tech gives honorary doctorate to a service dog. Amen, brother. And I'm going to tell you what those sweet animals deserve more than honorary doctorates. They, That's right. They are incredible wonderful creatures and uh i hate the fact that you can't pet them when they're working oh i know because you would love to just grab them up and hug on them and stuff because they're precious animals yeah absolutely Article is dated May 18th of this year. Virginia Tech's virtual commencement ceremony included an honorary doctorate being bestowed on a beloved university staffer, a therapy dog named Moose. Moose! Moose, I like it. The school announced Moose, an eight-year-old therapy dog employed by the school's Cook Counseling Center, was awarded an honorary doctorate in veterinary medicine Friday as part of the school's virtual commencement ceremony. Moose, who has been with the school since 2014, is one of four dogs serving at the Cook Counseling Center as a working therapy animal and ambassador for mental health awareness. That
1: is fantastic. That's, amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. Love I do
0: it. too, man. I'm going to tell you what, that is special. The canine previously received the Virginia Veterinary Medical Association's Animal Hero Award in 2019. Outstanding. Quote, the students here talk a lot about how Moose has broken down the stigma around mental health care on campus. Owner Trent Davis told CNN, veterinarians are unfortunately a very challenged population. They have very high rates of suicide, and this profession can be quite disturbing. That I 100% understand because these poor people, they love animals, mm-hmm. and some of them have been having you know, dogs coming to them since they were puppies, cats since they were kittens, and so forth and so on. And when they have to euthanize these creatures, a part of them dies just like it does with the owners because they've
1: cared for these animals all those years. That's just really, it's it's bad. It takes a certain level of person to be a veterinarian or a veterinarian staff. Yes,
0: it does. He has really helped the students and staff at Virginia Tech and has gotten a lot of recognition for that. The school said that Moose is facing his own health problems amid the COVID-19 pandemic, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer just one week after his birthday in February. Damn it, poor guy. Officials said Moose is still receiving chemotherapy treatments while continuing his therapy dog work, and has been given a positive prognosis by his veterinarians. It's <laughs> too damn cute, which is good. I am glad he's going to be okay. I will. I'm going. I'm going to follow up on this, but I am going to post a picture of this boy during the week leading up to this episode i'm gonna put a picture of him up there because right he deserves i'm gonna post a story as a matter of fact he's a hero he's a hero yeah love those therapy animals and if you are a person in possession of one of these animals uh you guys know how special they are and people around you if you see the therapy animals like we said don't disturb them when they're working you know you want to pick them up and hug them but Respect the uh, rules. You know, if you oh, if you see right. somebody with them, if they got a sign on them, don't pet them. If, nope. it, you can ask the owners. Sometimes they'll give permission. Sometimes they don't. But right. please respect their work and stay clear. You can say hi to them and stuff like that. But don't touch an, a working therapy animal unless you have permission.
1: And if the owner says no, don't feel bad or upset because these dogs are very purpose-driven, very job-driven. And... You know, like they, they don't, they're not, they're cute, cuddly, but they're not the kind of dog that wants to be petted all the time. They have a mission, they have a purpose. Their purpose is to be a service animal. And sometimes they just don't care to be petted by people. Nope. You know, they don't. They're like,
0: hey, dude, I'm working. You know, yeah. don't take it personal, but I'm on the job. Yeah. Just, just uh, it, it is what it is. Just but be- I love that story. I, I thought that was very cool. It's a brief story, but I, I thought it was very touching. And I'm glad that uh, this person particular pooch receive this kind of recognition because the the other ones that do this work deserve just as much oh
1: absolutely i remember i went to a uh there was a movie that came out recently about um uh service dogs not service dogs in this sense where they go and provide comfort for people or are or, or, you know i dogs or whatever um these were dogs that were in military service they were canine uh dogs obviously but uh They had made a movie about one of them, and then at the Natural Science Museum, they premiered the movie, and then they had a bunch of of the dogs there that were in the service, and you actually got to go up and pet them. Nice. And it was awesome. Very nice. They had a state trooper dog. They had a nurse dog. These dogs were all amazing. And I forget which one. I think it was a state trooper dog. When I went to go pet him, he's this big old dog, you know? I went to go pet him and he just like turned and looked at me and just started licking my face and just wouldn't stop. And I I was like, I I must have something in my beard that tastes good. (laughs) Got a few crumbs up in there. But the uh, the sheriff was like, oh, he must like you. He doesn't usually do that. I was like, I think I got something in my beard. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Very nice. Some leftovers he was snacking on.
0: Well, that's awesome, brother.
1: All right, man. Well, it's a great story, dude. Amen.
0: Hey, I mean, I, I am mean, I love animals, man. And you know,
1: and this is a, g- a good story, and, and, and these times, we we need to hear more positive stories. Good stuff. Yeah, and, absolutely.
0: And with, to, to help
1: combat all of the fear and negativity out there. Amen
0: know? to that, bud. <clears throat>
1: So today's episode is on, as I mentioned, is on the Mantell UFO incident that took place in Kentucky in 1948. I have never heard of this. I'm looking forward to Not it. A lot of people have. It is a very, very interesting story. So let's get into it. Wednesday, January 7th, 1948 in Fort Knox, Kentucky started out as any other day. It was a cold 49 degrees and the max wind speed was 14 miles per hour. And the low for the day was 27 degrees, five degrees below freezing. What started out as a normal day, however, turned into one of excitement, then one of disaster for the Godman Army Airfield and Captain Thomas Mantell of the Kentucky Air National Guard. Captain Thomas Francis Mantell Jr. was born 30th July 1922. He graduated from Mayo High School in Louisville. That's a very interesting name. Mm -hmm. On June 16, 1942, Mantell joined the United States Army Air Corps, finishing flight school the 30th of that month.
0: Now... Uh, for the younger folks, the United States Army Air Corps uh-huh. later became the United States Air Force. Uh, Everybody uh, has to you know go. that the Air Force was go. actually part of the Army, and then they they branched off and created their own branch of service, gotcha, dedicated solely to air power. Of course, we all know the story. There you go. But that's just a little tidbit, just in case anybody was wondering. See, who
1: says we're not a historical podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> During World War II, he was a C-47 Skytrain pilot assigned to the 96th Troop Carrier Squadron, 440th Troop Carrier Group, which airdropped the 101st Airborne Division into Normandy, France on June 6, 1944, and participated in Operation Market Garden. Outstanding. Mantel, then a lieutenant, was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism while flying over Holland on September 18, 1944, during Operation Market Garden. He was the pilot of a C-47 named Vulture's Delight, towing a glider when it came under heavy anti-aircraft fire. All but one of the rudder and elevator controls were disabled, and the aircraft's tail was afire. Mantel's crew chief fought the fire with live ammunition detonating.
0: And I'm going to tell you what, that ain't no damn joke, brother. Man, that ain't no joke.
1: That is one of the most stressful situations I can think of right there.
0: Absolutely. Those shells exploding, yeah. and if they've got any kind of backing. now. I've had a shell go off next to me, Ooh. right next to my foot. Oh, my gosh. Didn't even didn't even faze me, because mm-hmm. luckily there wasn't anything behind the shell to give it any propellant. But oh. the actual casing exploded on a catalytic converter of the Jeep I was riding in with my grandfather. Oh, geez. And a 7-millimeter mag shell went off. I mean, it just popped next to my foot, so it folded out like a flower. Oh. And the slug was just sitting there on the thing. Oh, my gosh. It was strange. That's but I'm going to tell you what, when it, they're in canisters like they are here... It's compacted, and those things will go off, and they will it's like shrapnel everywhere. That's, that's really dangerous. Devastating. Yeah, that's deadly. It's
1: crazy. Rather than release the glider, Lieutenant Mantel decided to continue with his mission. The glider was released at the correct location, and Mantel returned to base. Upon inspection, his aircraft was so damaged that it appeared to be unable to fly. Mantel was also described as able to think fast and act quickly. In 1947, Mantel was discharged from the Army and enlisted in the Kentucky Air National Guard and joined the 165th Fighter Squadron of P51 Mustangs. Nice. Mantell did all this by the time he was 25 years old. Sweet. This man Yeah. 25.
0: What the hell of a start to life,
1: huh? Oh my gosh. That's... Well, that's that's
0: true because most of the gentlemen over there, my grandfather was on the ground when this guy was dropping 101st guys in Normandy. Uh-huh. My dad, my granddaddy was on the ground storming the beach on the first day. So yeah, and he was only what, eighteen? Yeah. 18 so eighteen, nineteen years old. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Twenty five years old do all of that by then. That, that's yeah, amazing. Those, I'm greatest generation, man. Yeah, I hear yeah. Here, yeah. Got, they got guts personified, man. These guys I'm I it's sad that we're losing them at such a fast rate now, but yeah. they're all in their late nineties and hundreds mm-hmm. now mostly. Yeah. Uh but man, what what legends they were.
1: The North American Aviation P-51 Mustang is an American long-range single-seat fighter and fighter bomber used during World War II, the Korean War, among other conflicts. The Mustang was called, quote, the best American dogfighter by Chief Naval Test Pilot Captain Eric Brown in 1944, and a squadron of four P-51s led by Captain Mantell would be involved in a deadly chase with the UFO that fateful day in 1948.
0: And you know what's crazy? Everybody would think, oh, how are these little prop- these little prop planes going to catch... A UFO, especially, you know, by today's standards, we know how fast they move and stuff like right. that. But I will say this. The P-51 was a deadly, seriously fast, turbocharged, 1,500-horsepower horsepower monster. Yeah. This sucker used to fly with, I, th- I can't remember the designation for those uh, German jets, that little two-engine jets that the Germans oh, had. Oh,
1: yeah. I know and about, yeah. They,
0: they could fly toe-to-toe with those things and yeah. catch them. And outmaneuver them, I mean, those planes were, they, they were, I'm, I'm just going to say it, you can bleep it if you want, but they were the shit. Yeah. They were
1: tough. They had a top speed of like 429 knots. They hauled ass. I mean, yes, they yeah, did. They, yeah. they were fast. Now we see all that to set up what's, what's about to happen with this story um, so that you understand uh, Captain Mantell's mentality, his his uh, service and his experience as and his, well. And his obvious grit. The guy and is And his tough. grit, as well as the fact that he wasn't just flying some sort of crop duster. He was flying a jet. Probably the, f-
0: the, the, the fastest fighter we had during at that time. era. Right. Yeah. All
1: right. So the story begins at approximately 1 p.m. on July 7th, 1948, when Kentucky State Police began to receive reports of a large metallic circular object flying over the city of Mansville. The object was described as 200 to 300 feet in diameter, Holy whitish heck. in color, and with a red light toward its bottom side. Wow, that's, that's a football field, man. Huge, man. Yeah. That's big. It was seen moving south, and soon reports were coming from other towns in Kentucky, including Owensboro and Irvington. Later, it was discovered the object had been seen moving south, starting in Ohio and moving through Kentucky. At 1.20 p.m. approximately, Kentucky State Police reported the sightings to Fort Knox, who in turn notified Godman Army Airfield to be on alert. At 1.45 p.m., Sergeant Quinton Blackwell saw the object from his position in the control tower at Godman Field at Fort Knox. He was soon joined by three other witnesses, including Base Commander Colonel Guy Hicks, who all described seeing a, quote, "...very white, large object about one-fourth the size of a full moon. Through binoculars, it appeared to have a red border on the bottom," It remained stationary seemingly for one and a half hours. Wow. It just sat there? It just sat there for one and a half Jeez. hours. Another witness, Private First Class Stanley Oliver, stated, To me, it had the resemblance of an ice cream cone topped with red. At the same time, Captain Mantell was already in the air in his F 51D, the redesignation of the Mustang after World War II, along with three others on a ferry mission when he received the call from Goddard to investigate. What follows is a verbatim from the transcripts of the call. Godman Tower, calling the flight of four ships northbound over Godman Field. Do you read? Over. Godman Tower, calling the flight of four ships northbound over Godman Field. Do you read? Over.
0: Roger, Godman Tower. This is National
1: Guard 869, flight leader of the formation. Over. National Guard 869 from Godman Tower. We have an object out south of Godman that we are unable to identify. We would like to know if you have gas enough and if you could take a look for us if you will.
0: Uh, Roger, I have the gas and I will take a look for you if you give me the correct heading.
1: Mantell didn't receive the coordinates. However, one of the pilots reported that he was low on fuel and would continue on to the pre-assigned flight plan. At approximately 2.40 p.m., Mantell and two other pilots, Lieutenant Albert Clemens and Lieutenant Hammond, turned toward the object and began a spiral climb to 15,000 feet on a heading of 220 degrees, the approximate direction of the object from Godwin Field. Somewhere between 15,000 and 22,000 feet, the other two pilots turned back due to low oxygen at which point Mantell radioed Godman Tower and stated, quote,
0: The object is directly ahead and above me now, moving at about half my speed. It appears to be a metallic object or possibly reflection of the sun from a metallic object, and it is of tremendous size. I'm still climbing. I'm trying to close in for a better look. I'll get to about 25,000 feet for about 10 minutes.
1: This would be Mantell's last communication with the tower. According to the Air Force Air Technical Command's investigation, Mantel lost consciousness due to lack of oxygen somewhere around 25,000 to 30,000 feet due to the aircraft continuing to climb until increasing altitude caused a sufficient loss of power for it to level out. The plane then went into a tight diving spiral, a witness would later report seeing Mantell's Mustang in a circling descent. The uncontrolled descent would result in excessive speed and cause the plane to disintegrate. A number of airfields would report a flaming object in the midwestern sky where it was tracked for 20 minutes before disappearing. Just after 5 p.m., on a farm south of Franklin, Kentucky, firemen would pull the body of Captain Mantell from the Mustang's wreckage. The Air Force Air Technical Command investigation stated. It is believed that Captain Mantell never regained consciousness. This is born out of the fact that the canopy lock was still in place after the crash, discounting any attempt to abandon the aircraft. It was also determined that he crashed at 3.18 p.m. as this was the time that his watch stopped when pulled from the wreckage. By 3.50 p.m., the object was no longer visible by Godman Field. However, reports would continue south through Tennessee. This incident would end up being reported by newspapers around the nation and receive significant news media attention. A number of sensational rumors were also circulated about Mantel's crash. According to UFO historian Curtis Peebles, among the rumors were claims that, quote, the flying saucer was a Soviet missile. It was an alien spacecraft that shot down Mantel's fighter when it got too close. Captain Mantel's body was found riddled with bullets. The body was missing. The plane had completely disintegrated in the air and the wreckage was radioactive. End quote. However, no evidence has ever surfaced to substantiate any of these claims, and Air Force investigations specifically refuted such claims, such as the supposedly radioactive wreckage.
0: Yeah, the only reason they tell you stuff like that, we all know, is cover-up. Uh-huh. You know, first of all, I am surprised that they even allowed the news media to report such a thing. Multiple, too. Yeah, yeah. but I guess you can't stop it, because if it's floating over multiple states, mm-hmm. apparently, what you say, it started... In, First spotted in Ohio and continued South all the way through Kentucky, Kentucky and into on into Tennessee. Tennessee. Yep. So, That's yeah. Right. I, I, you know, this <laughs> this is back in Roswell days. It's, yeah, it, yeah. You know what exactly. I mean? See, and it was, yeah. everything was hush-hush back then. You know, they didn't just let stuff get out like that. So, yeah, they make up all these fish stories. Like, oh, his his body was riddled with bullets. He was shot down. Shot down A so, a missile. It was over his own country. He was shot down in Kentucky. (laughs) I mean, nobody shot him at no No. 25,000 feet.
1: No, no, not at all. No, the
0: crash definitely makes sense. He was just trying to be gutsy and and do his job and got too damn high and... And those P fifty ones, uh, they only have one set of
1: oxygen. So you when yeah, you run not, out.
0: And they're not like what you call super airtight. When you close them up, no. they are they're aerodynamic and they, they do seal pretty good, but you're still in a box at yeah. twenty five thousand feet, you're not pressurized no, and you don't have reserve oxygen. Yeah. I think I think maybe they had breathing mass, but I guess he didn't
1: yeah, well, I mean, the other two pilots uh, turned turned away for, for lack of oxygen. He must have uh, either not used as much or just ignored it. He probably ordered them down, said, y'all go down. I'm going to try to get a look. Yeah. He said, I'm going to try to get up there for about 10 minutes and bought the farm. Unfortunately, just couldn't do it. That's too bad. The Mantel crash was quickly investigated by Project Sign, the Air Force's new research group, which had been created to study UFO incidents. Though Project Science staff never came to a conclusion, other Air Force investigators ruled that Mantel had misidentified the planet Venus and wrongly believing that he could close in to get a better look. What? Yeah, Venus, Venus was Venus it
0: appears as a tiny little light in the sky. Exactly. It is not
1: some three hundred meters
0: across the sky, even if you're at twenty five thousand feet.
1: And it wouldn't be Please. in this one place for an hour and a half. No. It would move along as as, that, the, as no. the Earth moved. The Earth. The Earth. The Earth moved. It would yeah, move. Yeah, it damn sure would. In 1952, U.S. Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt, the supervisor of Project Blue Book, Project Sign's successor, was ordered to reinvestigate the Mantel incident. Ruppelt spoke with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer at Ohio State University and scientific consultant to Project Sign and Project Blue Book. Hynek had supplied Project Sign with the Venus Explanation in 1948 mainly because Venus had been in the same place in the sky that Mantel's UFO had observed. However, by 1952, Dr. Hynek had concluded that the Venus explanation was incorrect because, quote, Venus wasn't bright enough to be seen, end quote, by Mantel and the other witnesses, and because a considerable haze was present that would have further obscured the planet in the sky. Rupold also noted Dr. Hynek's statement that Venus, even if visible, would have been a, quote, pinpoint of light, end quote. what I tell you? Mm-hmm but that eyewitnesses, quote, descriptions plainly indicated a large object. None of the descriptions could even vaguely be called a pinpoint of light, end quote. This almost comical conclusion was hastily put to rest by eyewitnesses as well. Glenn Mays, who lived near Franklin, stated categorically that Mantell's plane exploded in midair. Quote, the plane circled three times, like the pilot didn't know where he was going, end quote, reported Mays, then started down into a dive about 20,000 feet, end quote.
0: Now, let me explain one quick thing.
1: Uh, When it was
0: discussing how he would go in circles Mm -hmm. and ascend in circles, it's easier on the aerodynamics at that high altitude because the air is very thin. Right. And in those old-style wing planes, if you're using a prop, there's less air to pull, so you have to climb at a slower rate in a circular motion. Gotcha. It it helps them get up higher without, you know, because
1: if they try to go into a direct climb, they'll stall. Uh, That makes sense. Yeah. So just, just a little tidbit. A little more history for you. Quote, about halfway down, there was a terrible explosion, end quote. Also, there is testimony from Godman Base Commander Guy F. Hicks, who stated to reporters that he observed the craft for almost an hour through binoculars. He would not have confused what he saw with the planet Venus. Richard T. Miller, who was in the operations room of Scott Air Force Base in Belleville, Illinois, also made several profound statements regarding the crash. He was monitoring the radio talk between Mantell and Godman Tower and heard this statement very clearly. Quote,
0: My God, I see people in this thing.
1: Miller added that on the morning after the crash, at a briefing, investigators had stated that Mantell died, quote, pursuing an intelligently controlled unidentified flying object, end quote. In conclusion, Miller made this statement, quote, that evening, Air Technical Intelligence Center officers from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base arrived and ordered all personnel to turn over any materials relating to the crash. Then, after we turned it over to them, they said they had already completed the investigation. I was no longer a skeptic. I had been up to that time. Now I wondered why the government had gone to all the trouble of covering it up to keep it away from the press and the public, quote. The government. The government. In recent years, additional information has come forward. Captain James F. Dusler, who was one of several military officers at Godman, was retired and living in England. In 1997, he stated that he and several other officers actually saw the gigantic UFO hovering over Godman Field that day. Dusler, who was a pilot and crash investigator, stated, quote, the UFO was a strange, gray-looking object, which looked like a rotating inverted ice cream cone. End quote. Shortly after the crash, Doosler visited the site and made these observations. Quote, The wings and tail section had broken off on impact with the ground, and they were a short distance from the plane, he recalled. There was no damage to the surrounding trees, and it was obvious that there had been no forward or sideways motion when the plane had come down. It just appeared to have, quote, belly flopped into the clearing. Yeah, flat spin. hmm straight down. Yeah, straight down, just plop. There was very little damage to the fuselage, which was in one piece, and no signs of blood whatsoever in the cockpit. There was no scratching on the body of the fuselage to indicate any forward movement, and the propeller blade bore no telltale scratch marks to show it had been rotating at the time of impact. And one blade had been embedded in the ground. The damage pattern was not consistent with an aircraft of this type crashing at a high speed into the ground, because of the large engine in the nose of the plane. It would come down nose first and hit the ground at an angle, even if he had managed to glide it in. It would have cut a swath through the trees and channel into the ground. None of these things were present. All indications were that it had just belly flopped into the clearing. I must admit, I found this very strange. To further debunk the Venus theory, astronomical records indicated that the planet was only 33 degrees above the horizon at the time of the incident, thus totally eliminated from this case. So it was way too low. Yeah. Way too low. Uh Uh-huh. The Air Force, embarrassed by this Venus theory falling through, now search for another worldly explanation for the object observed that day. Of course they are. They not want to try to cover it up, right? Always got to cover things up. That's right. Having rejected the Venus explanation, Captain Ruppelt began to research other explanations for the incident. He was particularly interested in a suggestion by Dr. Hynek that Mantell could have misidentified a United States Navy skyhook weather balloon. In Madisonville, Kentucky, the object was seen through a telescope and identified as a balloon by one observer. Additionally, between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m., an astronomer at Vanderbilt University, quote, watched an object in the sky, viewed through binoculars, he said it was a pear-shaped balloon with cables and a basket attached, end quote. However, others disputed this idea, noting that no particular skyhook balloon could be conclusively identified as being in the area in question during Mantell's pursuit. Which there would be a record of said flight. During this objection, Rupel thought the skyhook explanation was plausible, the balloons were a secret Navy project at the time of Mantell's crash, were made from reflective aluminum, and were about 100 feet in diameter, which was smaller than actually what they had claimed yeah, it before, much, yeah. consistent with the description of the UFO as a large metallic cone-shaped. Since the Skyhook balloons were secret at the time, neither Mantell nor the other observers in the air control tower would have been able to identify the UFO as a Skyhook. But this was never proved, as Rupert wrote quote, somewhere in the archives of the Air Force or the Navy, there are records that will show whether or not a balloon was launched from Clinton County Air Force Base, Ohio, on January seventh, nineteen forty eight I never could find these records. People who were working on the early Skyhook projects remember operating out of Clinton County Air Force in nineteen forty seven but refused to be pinned down to a January seventh flight. Maybe they said the Mantel incident is the same old UFO jigsaw puzzle. Yep. And that is the story of Captain Mantell, a victim of chasing UFO.
0: Yep. You know, I know they throw the balloon theory in there. Yeah. Uh, but no, I ain't buying it.
1: But see, they 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 have the balloon theory, but they have, they have it. They use the balloon theory in other UFO experiences as well. But they're able to actually pinpoint when balloons were actually, uh, when balloons were released for those other ones but they have yet to prove that a balloon was released for this one yeah. yeah
0: and 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 yeah it comes from ohio so it just happens to fit the facts so it assists them with their
1: cover-up i mean it's a convenient truth if you want to call it that but uh absolutely yeah, I, I i still i still don't think captain mantel would have mistaken a balloon even a weather balloon for something out of this world.
0: Yeah. And like I said, and after it was declassified, it was easy for them to say, hey, nobody knew. Yeah. So they could throw it in years later and say, no big deal, because at that time it was no longer top secret or whatever.
1: And Captain uh, Captain know. Colonel Hicks uh, from the Godman field, he observed for an hour and a half. So you would think he would have it down in memory. So later on, when they released images of these balloons, if it had been a balloon. He'd have said, hell no, that ain't it. Yeah. Or if it had been, he would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, that is what I saw. I saw a yeah. balloon. But he never said that. He said it still. Was, he said to this day, it was not a balloon. Yep. So yeah, I I, I believe I, him. I believe it was a UFO that caused the death of this uh, Mantell. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. That in high altitude. And yeah, and yeah. Well, I mean, the UFO wasn't directly the cause of it. It was him chasing it. And he not... just
0: got caught off guard. By yeah. His heart.
1: He got too high. Too excited.
0: Air thinned out on him and he's like, oh crap, before he could get down, he was done for.
1: Yeah, but he was only 26 when he died, so that's really sad. That is very sad. Yeah. But a very interesting story and and one that has um you know not been solved to this day.
0: Yeah. And the belly flop of the plane, yeah. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So if he did go into just a flat spin, that means his engine probably stalled and he just came straight down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, they are correct in their explanation that the heavy engine in the front would cause it to go nose first in a lot of cases when you lose power. Right. But, you know, but who knows? Yeah. It's, Was it guided to the ground by a power beam? Was it, you know, good question. you never know. Never could, know. He, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. There are a yeah, lot of just, unanswered
1: questions in this story for yeah, sure. For sure. into
0: that. Yeah. All right, James, why don't you tell the fine folks where they can find us? Absolutely. be my pleasure. Folks, you can find us on the Fourthhand.com media network, along with our sister project, What the Suck podcast. Uh, you can also find several other fantastic shows with fantastic people, and we encourage you to go there. Give them a look as well. Give them a like if you, you know, and listen. Uh, You can also find us on the Big Evil Facebook under State of Fear. And you can find us on Instagram under State of Fear. Yes. And we encourage followings. We also encourage reviews. Comments. Uh, Comments. If you'd like to research the subject for yourself and maybe add anything, uh go under the post and add any information you like
1: yeah uh let us know if you like it we're on youtube as well so go
0: listen to our our episodes on youtube always forget
1: youtube shame on me and you can comment and and like those as well and subscribe to our channel on youtube also um and like you said just uh send us your reviews we want to hear what you have to say absolutely all right well i'm ready to get back in the car head on the next state what about you amen folks y'all
0: take care and we'll see you down the road this is james and this is chris and y'all have a hell of an evening State of fear, where terror is homegrown. Join us as we take a drive down dusty back roads and discover the obscure and dark history of this country, human and otherwise, that lurk in your backyard.
1: Episode 17 of State of Fear Podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and with me, as always, every single damn week, is my good friend, James. What's up, James?
0: What's up, Chris? How y'all doing out there, folks?
1: Man, I hope everybody's doing well, staying safe out there. So, as we said, today's episode is on Kentucky, and the topic for tonight is the Mantell UFO incident, which is one of, uh, I believe, one of only a few... Involving the death of a pilot chasing UFO. We're not talking about KFC. No, KFC. You know, that is strange. It is scary, but uh, <laughs> we'll leave that to the health food podcast. Amen to that. Amen. But uh, all right, before we do that, let's uh go ahead and get to the uh, new, weird news of the week. Why not? Let's just jump right into it. Let's do it, man. What you got for us? <laughs>
0: This t- the, the title of this article, this caught me right off the bat. I love this one. This is not, like I said, this is not another scary one, yeah. But it is unusual. It is quite it, unusual. It is yes. quite weird. Yes. The title of the article is "Virginia Tech Gives Honorary Doctorate to a Service Dog." Amen, brother. And I'm gonna tell you what; those sweet animals deserve more than honorary doctorates. They, That's right. They are incredible wonderful creatures and uh i hate the fact that you can't pet them when they're working oh i know because you would love to just grab them up and hug on them and stuff because they're precious animals yeah absolutely Article is dated May 18th of this year. Virginia Tech's virtual commencement ceremony included an honorary doctorate being bestowed on a beloved university staffer, a therapy dog named Moose. Moose! Moose, I like it. The school announced Moose, an eight-year-old therapy dog employed by the school's Cook Counseling Center, was awarded an honorary doctorate in veterinary medicine Friday as part of the school's virtual commencement ceremony. Moose, who has been with the school since 2014, is one of four dogs serving at the Cook Counseling Center as a working therapy animal and ambassador for mental health awareness. That is fantastic. That's
1: That's fantastic. Yeah, I love it. I do
0: too, man. I'm going to tell you what, that is special. The canine previously received the Virginia Veterinary Medical Association's Animal Hero Award in 2019. Outstanding. The students here talk a lot about how Moose has broken down the stigma around mental health care on campus. Owner Trent Davis told CNN, Veterinarians are unfortunately a very challenged population. They have very high rates of suicide, and this profession can be quite disturbing. That I 100% understand, because these poor people, they love animals, Mm -hmm. and some of them have been having, you know, dogs coming to them since they were puppies, cats since they were kittens, and so forth and so on, and when they have to euthanize these creatures... A part of them dies just like it does with the owners because they've
1: cared for these animals all those years. That's just really, it's it's bad. It takes a certain level of person to be a veterinarian or a veterinarian staff.
0: Yes, it does. He has really helped the students and staff at Virginia Tech and has gotten a lot of recognition for that. The school said that Moose is facing his own health problems amid the COVID-19 pandemic. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer just one week after his birthday in February. Damn it. Poor guy. Officials said Moose is still receiving chemotherapy treatments while continuing his therapy dog work, and has been given a positive prognosis by his veterinarians. It's <laughs> too damn cute, which is good. I am glad he's going to be okay. I will. I'm going to. I'm going to follow up on this, but I am going to post a picture of this boy during the week leading up yeah. to this episode i'm gonna put a picture of him up there because right he's, he deserves i'm gonna post a story as a matter of fact he's a want, hero he's a hero yeah love those therapy animals and if you are a person in possession of one of these animals uh you guys know how special they are yeah. and people around you if you see the therapy animals like we said don't disturb them when they're working you know you want to pick them up and hug them but Respect the uh, rules. You know, if you oh, if you see right. somebody with them, if they got a sign on them, don't pet them. If, nope. it, you can ask the owners. Sometimes they'll give permission. Sometimes they don't. But right. please respect their work and stay clear. You can say hi to them and stuff like that, but don't touch an, a working therapy animal unless you have permission.
1: And if the owner says no, don't feel bad or upset because these dogs are very purpose-driven, very job-driven, and... You know, like they, they don't, they're not, they're cute, cuddly, but they're not the kind of dog that wants to be petted all the time. They have a mission, they have a purpose. Their purpose is to be a service animal. And sometimes they just don't care to be petted by people. Nope. You know, they don't. But
0: they're like, hey, dude, I'm working. You know, yeah. don't take it personal, but I'm on the job. Yeah. Just, just
1: uh, it, it is what it is. Just but be-
0: I love that story. I, I thought that was very cool. It's a brief story, but I, I thought it was very touching. And I'm glad that uh, this particular pooch receive this kind of recognition because the the other ones that do this work deserve just
1: as much oh absolutely i remember i went to a uh there was a movie that came out recently about um uh service dogs not service dogs in this sense where they go and provide comfort for people or are or, or, you know i seeing dogs or whatever um these were dogs that were in military service they were canine uh dogs obviously but uh they had they made a movie about one of them, and then at the Natural Science Museum, they premiered the movie, and then they had a bunch of, of the dogs there that were in the service, and you actually got to go up and pet them. Nice. And it was awesome. Very they had, nice. They had a state trooper dog. They had a nurse dog. These dogs were all amazing, and I forget which one. I think it was a state trooper dog when I went to go pet him. He's this big old dog, you know? I went to go pet him, and he just like turned and looked at me and just started licking my face and just wouldn't stop. And I, I was like, I must have something in my beard that tastes good. <laughs> got a few crumbs up in there. But the uh, the sheriff was like, oh, he must like you. He doesn't usually do that. I was like, I think I got something in my beard. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Very some, nice. Some leftovers he was snacking on. <laughs>
0: Well, that's awesome, brother.
1: All right, man. What's well, great story, dude?
0: Amen. Hey, I, I, I mean, I'm I love animals, man. And you know,
1: and this is a, g- a good story. And, and and these times, we we need to hear more positive stories. Good stuff. Yeah, and, absolutely. And with, to, to help combat all of the fear and negativity out there. Amen know? to that, buddy. Mm-hmm. All right, so today's episode is on, as I mentioned, is on the Mantell UFO incident that took place in Kentucky in 1948. I have never heard of this. I'm looking forward to it. A lot of people have. It is a very, very interesting story, so let's get into it. Wednesday, January 7th, 1948, in Fort Knox, Kentucky, started out as any other day. It was a cold 49 degrees, and the max wind speed was 14 miles per hour, and the low for the day was 27 degrees, 5 degrees below freezing. What started out as a normal day, however, turned into one of excitement, then one of disaster for the Godman Army Airfield and Captain Thomas Mantell of the Kentucky Air National Guard. Captain Thomas Francis Mantell Jr. was born 30th July 1922. He graduated from Mayo High School in Louisville. That's a very interesting name. Mm -hmm. On June 16, 1942, Mantell joined the United States Army Air Corps, finishing flight school the 30th of that month.
0: Now, uh, for the younger folks, the United States Army Air Corps Uh later became the United States Air Force. Uh, Everybody uh, has to know that. The Air Force was actually part of the Army, and then they they branched off and created their own branch of service. Dedicated solely to air power, of course. We all know the story. There you go. But that's just a little tidbit, just in case anybody was wondering. See,
1: who says we're not a historical podcast? Eh. (laughs) Yeah. During World War II, he was a C-47 Skytrain pilot assigned to the 96th Troop Carrier Squadron, 440th Troop Carrier Group, which airdropped the 101st Airborne Division into Normandy, France on June 6, 1944, and participated in Operation Market Garden. Outstanding. Mantel, then a lieutenant, was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for heroism while flying over Holland on September 18, 1944, during Operation Market Garden. He was the pilot of a C forty seven named Vulture's Delight, towing a glider when it came under heavy anti aircraft fire. All but one of the rudder and elevator controls were disabled and the aircraft's tail was afire. Mantel's crew chief fought the fire with live ammunition detonating.
0: And I'm gonna tell you what, that ain't no damn joke, brother. That ain't no joke.
1: That is one of the most stressful situations I can think of right there.
0: Absolutely. Those shells exploding and if they've got any kind of backing. Now I've had a shell go off next to me, Ooh. right next to my foot. Oh, my gosh. Didn't even faze didn't even me because mm-hmm. luckily there wasn't anything behind the shell to give it any propellant. But oh. the actual casing exploded on a catalytic converter of the Jeep I was riding in with my grandfather. Oh, geez. And a 7-millimeter mag shell went off. I mean, it just popped next to my foot, so it folded out like a flower. Oh. And the slug was just sitting there on the thing. Oh, my god It was strange. That's but I'm going to tell you what. When it, they're in canisters like they are here... It's compacted, and those things will go off, and they will it's like shrapnel everywhere. That's, that's really dangerous. Devastating. Yeah, deadly. It's
1: crazy. Rather than release the glider, Lieutenant Mantel decided to continue with his mission. The glider was released at the correct location, and Mantel returned to base. Upon inspection, his aircraft was so damaged that it appeared to be unable to fly. Mantel was also described as able to think fast and act quickly. In 1947, Mantel was discharged from the Army and enlisted... In the Kentucky Air National Guard, and joined the 165th Fighter Squadron of P-51 Mustangs. Nice. Mantell did all this by the time he was 25 years old. Sweet. This man. Yeah. 25.
0: What a hell of a start to life, huh?
1: Oh my gosh. That's... Well, that's
0: that's true because most of the gentlemen over there. My grandfather was on the ground when this guy was dropping 101st guys the Normandy. Uh-huh. My dad, my granddaddy was on the ground storming the beach on the first day so yeah and he was only what 18 yeah 18 19 years old yeah yeah crazy yeah 25 years old do all of that by
1: then that's
0: amazing greatest generation man yeah yeah, yeah, they got guts personified man these guys i'm it's sad that we're losing them at such a fast rate now but they're all in their late 90s and 100s Mm -hmm, now mostly yeah uh but man what what legends they were
1: The North American Aviation P-51 Mustang is an American long-range single-seat fighter and fighter bomber used during World War II, the Korean War, among other conflicts. The Mustang was called, quote, the best American dogfighter by Chief Naval Test Pilot Captain Eric Brown in 1944. And a squadron of four P-51s led by Captain Mantell would be involved in a deadly chase with the UFO that fateful day in 1948.
0: And, you know, what's crazy? Everybody would think, oh, how are these little, these little prop planes going to catch a UFO? Especially, you know, by today's standards, we know how fast they move and stuff like right. that. But I will say this. The P-51 was a deadly Seriously fast, turbocharged 15 horsepower, 1500 horsepower monster. Yeah, this sucker used to fly with. I, th- I can't remember the designation for those uh German jets, those little two engine jets that the Germans oh, had. Oh, yeah, I know and about, yeah. They, they could fly toe to toe with those things and yeah. catch them. And outmaneuver them, I mean, those planes were they they were I'm I'm just gonna say it. You can bleep it if you want, but they were the shit. Yeah. They were tough.
1: They had a top speed of like four hundred and twenty-nine knots they hauled power. I mean, yes, they yeah, did. They, yeah. they were fast. Now we see all that to set up what's what's about to happen with this story, um, so that you understand uh Captain Mantel's mentality, his his uh service. And his experience as and his, well. And his obvious grit. The guy and is And his tough. grit, as well as the fact that he wasn't just flying some sort of crop duster. He was flying a jet.
0: Probably the, f- the, the, the fastest fighter we had during at that time. era. Right. Yeah. All
1: right. So the story begins at approximately 1 p.m. on July 7th, 1948, when Kentucky State Police began to receive reports of a large metallic circular object flying over the city of Mansville. The object was described as 200 to 300 feet in diameter, whitish in color, and with a red light toward its bottom side. Wow, that's, that's a football field, man. It's huge, man. Yeah. That's big. It was seen moving south, and soon reports were coming from other towns in Kentucky, including Owensboro and Irvington. Later, it was discovered the object had been seen moving south, starting in Ohio and moving through Kentucky. At 1.20 p.m. approximately, Kentucky State Police reported the sightings to Fort Knox, who in turn notified Godman Army Airfield to be on alert. At 1.45 p.m., Sergeant Quinton Blackwell saw the object from his position in the control tower at Godman Field at Fort Knox. He was soon joined by three other witnesses, including Base Commander Colonel Guy Hicks, who all described seeing a, quote, "...very white, large object about one-fourth the size of a full moon. Through binoculars, it appeared to have a red border on the bottom." It remained stationary seemingly for one and a half hours. Wow. It just sat there? It just sat there for one and a half Jeez. hours. Jeez. Another witness, Private First Class Stanley Oliver, stated, To me, it had the resemblance of an ice cream cone topped with red, At the same time, Captain Mantel was already in the air in his F-51D, the redesignation of the Mustang after World War II, along with three others on a ferry mission when he received the call from Goddard to investigate. What follows is a verbatim from the transcripts of the call. Godman Tower calling the flight of four ships northbound over Godman Field. Do you read? Over. Godman Tower calling the flight of four ships northbound over Godman Field. Do you read? Over. Roger, Godman Tower. This is
0: National Guard
1: 869,
0: flight leader of the
1: formation. Over. National Guard 869 from Godman Tower. We have an object out south of Godman that we are unable to identify. We would like to know if you have gas enough and if you could take a look for us if you will.
0: Uh, Roger, I have the gas and I will take a look for you if you give me the correct heading.
1: Mantell didn't receive the coordinates. However, one of the pilots reported that he was low on fuel and would continue on to the pre-assigned flight plan. At approximately 2.40 p.m., Mantell and two other pilots, Lieutenant Albert Clemens and Lieutenant Hammond, turned toward the object and began a spiral climb to 15,000 feet on a heading of 220 degrees, the approximate direction of the object from Godwin Field. Somewhere between 15,000 and 22,000 feet, the other two pilots turned back due to low oxygen at which point Mantell radioed Godman Tower and stated, quote,
0: The object is directly ahead and above me now, moving at about half my speed. It appears to be a metallic object or possibly reflection of the sun from a metallic object, and it is of tremendous size. I'm still climbing. I'm trying to close in for a better look. I'll get to about 25,000 feet for about 10 minutes.
1: This would be Mantell's last communication with the tower. According to the Air Force Air Technical Command's investigation, Mantell lost consciousness due to lack of oxygen somewhere around 25,000 to 30,000 feet due to the aircraft continuing to climb until increasing altitude caused a sufficient loss of power for it to level out. The plane then went into a tight diving spiral, A witness would later report seeing Mantell's Mustang in a circling descent. The uncontrolled descent would result in excessive speed and cause the plane to disintegrate. A number of airfields would report a flaming object in the Midwestern sky where it was tracked for 20 minutes before disappearing. Just after 5 p.m. on a farm south of Franklin, Kentucky, firemen would pull the body of Captain Mantell from the Mustang's wreckage. The Air Force Air Technical Command investigation stated, quote, It is believed that Captain Mantell never regained consciousness. This is born out of the fact that the canopy lock was still in place after the crash, discounting any attempt to abandon the aircraft, end quote. It was also determined that he crashed at 3.18 p.m., as this was the time that his watch stopped when pulled from the wreckage. By 3.50 p.m., the object was no longer visible by Godman Field. However, reports would continue south through Tennessee. This incident would end up being reported by newspapers around the nation and receive significant news media attention. A number of sensational rumors were also circulated about Mantell's crash. According to UFO historian Curtis Peebles, among the rumors were claims that, quote, the flying saucer was a Soviet missile. It was an alien spacecraft that shot down Mantell's fighter when it got too close. Captain Mantell's body was found riddled with bullets. The body was missing. The plane had completely disintegrated in the air, and the wreckage was radioactive. End quote. However, no evidence has ever surfaced to substantiate any of these claims, and Air Force investigations specifically refuted such claims, such as the supposedly radioactive wreckage.
0: Yeah, the only reason they tell you stuff like that, we all know, is cover-up. Uh-huh. You know, first of all, I am surprised that they even allowed the news media to report such
1: a thing. Multiple, too. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I guess you can't stop it, because if it's floating over multiple states, mm-hmm. apparently what did you say? It started first spot in Ohio and continued South all the way through Kentucky, Kentucky and into on into, into Tennessee. Tennessee. Yep. So, That's yeah. Right. I... I you know this. <laughs> this back in Roswell days. It's, yeah, yeah, you know what exactly. I mean. And it was yeah. everything was hush hush back then. You know they didn't just let stuff get out like that. So yeah, they make up all these fish stories. Like oh his his body was riddled with bullets. He was shot down. Shot so down. Soviet by missile. What? It was over his own country. He was shot down in Kentucky. <laughs> I mean, nobody shot him at that. No, no. 25,000 feet. No, no, not at all. No, the crash definitely makes sense. He was just trying to be gutsy and, and do his job he and to, got yeah. too damn high and. And those P-51s, uh, they only have one set
1: of oxygen, so you yeah, and run, you run not, out.
0: And they're not like what you call super airtight. When you close them up, no. they're They're aerodynamic, and they, they do seal pretty good, but you're still in a box at yeah. 25,000 feet. You're not pressurized, No, and you don't have reserve oxygen. Yeah. I, th- I think maybe they had breathing mass, but I guess he didn't.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the other two pilots uh, turned turned away for, for lack of oxygen. He must have uh, either not used as much or just ignored it. He probably ordered them down, Says y'all go down. I'm going to try to get a look. Yeah. He said, I'm going to try to get up there for about 10 minutes and bought the farm. Unfortunately, just couldn't do it. That's too bad. The Mantel crash was quickly investigated by Project Sign, the Air Force's new research group, which had been created to study UFO incidents. Though Project Science staff never came to a conclusion, other Air Force investigators ruled that Mantell had misidentified the planet Venus, and wrongly believing that he could close in to get a better look. What? Yeah, Venus. Venus. Was a,
0: it appears as a tiny little light in the sky. Exactly. It is means. not
1: some three hundred
0: meters across the sky, even if you're at twenty-five thousand feet. And it wouldn't be Please. in
1: just one place for an hour and a half. No. It would move along as as, that, the, as no. the Earth moved. The Earth. The Earth. The Earth moved. It would yeah, move. Yeah, it damn sure would. In 1952, U.S. Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt, the supervisor of Project Blue Book, Project Sign's successor, was ordered to reinvestigate the Mantel incident. Ruppelt spoke with Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer at Ohio State University and scientific consultant to Project Sign and Project Blue Book. Hynek had supplied Project Sign with the Venus Explanation in 1948 mainly because Venus had been in the same place in the sky that Mantel's UFO had observed. However, by 1952, Dr. Hynek had concluded that the Venus explanation was incorrect because, quote, Venus wasn't bright enough to be seen, end quote, by Mantel and the other witnesses, and because a considerable haze was present that would have further obscured the planet in the sky. Rupold also noted Dr. Hynek's statement that Venus, even if visible, would have been a, quote, pinpoint of light, end quote. what I tell you? Mm-hmm but that eyewitnesses, quote, descriptions plainly indicated a large object. None of the descriptions could even vaguely be called a pinpoint of light, end quote. This almost comical conclusion was hastily put to rest by eyewitnesses as well. Glenn Mays, who lived near Franklin, stated categorically that Mantell's plane exploded in midair. Quote, the plane circled three times, like the pilot didn't know where he was going, end quote, reported Mays, then started down into a dive about 20,000 feet, end quote.
0: Now, let me explain one quick thing.
1: Uh, when it
0: was discussing how he would go in circles Mm -hmm. and ascend in circles, it's easier on the aerodynamics at that high altitude because the air is very thin. Right. And in those old-style wing planes, if you're using a prop, there's less air to pull. So you have to climb at a slower rate in a circular motion. Gotcha. It it helps them get up higher without, you know,
1: because if they try to go into a direct climb, they'll stall. Uh, That makes sense. Yeah. So just, just a little tidbit. A little more history for you. Quote, about halfway down, there was a terrible explosion, end quote. Also, there is testimony from Godman Base Commander Guy F. Hicks, who stated to reporters that he observed the craft for almost an hour through binoculars. He would not have confused what he saw with the planet Venus. Richard T. Miller, who was in the operations room of Scott Air Force Base in Belleville, Illinois, also made several profound statements regarding the crash. He was monitoring the radio talk between Mantell and Godman Tower and heard this statement very clearly. Quote,
0: My God, I see people in this thing.
1: Miller added that on the morning after the crash, at a briefing, investigators had stated that Mantell died, quote, pursuing an intelligently controlled unidentified flying object, end quote. In conclusion, Miller made this statement, quote, that evening, Air Technical Intelligence Center officers from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base arrived and ordered all personnel to turn over any materials relating to the crash. Then, after we turned it over to them, they said they had already completed the investigation. I was no longer a skeptic. I had been up to that time. Now I wondered why the government had gone to all the trouble of covering it up to keep it away from the press and the public, quote. The government. The government. In recent years, additional information has come forward. Captain James F. Dusler, who was one of several military officers at Godman, was retired and living in England. In 1997, he stated that he and several other officers actually saw the gigantic UFO hovering over Godman Field that day. Dusler, who was a pilot and crash investigator, stated, quote, the UFO was a strange, gray looking object which looked like a rotating inverted ice cream cone. End quote. Shortly after the crash, Dusler visited the site and made these observations quote, The wings and tail section had broken off on impact with the ground and they were a short distance from the plane, he recalled. There was no damage to the surrounding trees, and it was obvious that there had been no forward or sideways motion when the plane had come down. It just appeared to have quote, belly flopped into the clearing. Yeah, flat spin mm mm-hmm, straight down. Yeah, straight down. Just plop. There was very little damage to the fuselage, which was in one piece, and no signs of blood whatsoever in the cockpit. There was no scratching on the body of the fuselage to indicate any forward movement, and the propeller blade bore no telltale scratch marks to show it had been rotating at the time of impact, and one blade had been embedded in the ground. The damage pattern was not consistent with an aircraft of this type crashing at a high speed into the ground because of the large engine in the nose of the plane, it would come down nose first and hit the ground at an angle. Even if he had managed to glide it in, it would have cut a swath through the trees and channel into the ground. None of these things were present. All indications were that it had just belly flopped into the clearing. I must admit, I found this very strange. To further debunk the Venus theory, astronomical records indicated that the planet was only 33 degrees above the horizon at the time of the incident, thus totally eliminated from this case. So it was way too low. Yeah. Way too low. Uh Uh-huh. The Air Force, embarrassed by the Venus theory falling through, now searched for another worldly explanation for the object observed that day. Of course they are. They always try to cover it up, right? Always got to cover things up. That's right. Having rejected the Venus explanation, Captain Ruppelt began to research other explanations for the incident. He was particularly interested in a suggestion by Dr. Hynek that Mantell could have misidentified a United States Navy skyhook weather balloon. In Madisonville, Kentucky, the object was seen through a telescope and identified as a balloon by one observer. Additionally, between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m., an astronomer at Vanderbilt University, quote, watched an object in the sky, viewed through binoculars. He said it was a pear-shaped balloon with cables and a basket attached, end quote. However, Others disputed this idea, noting that no particular skyhook balloon could be conclusively identified as being in the area in question during Mantell's pursuit. Which there would be a record of said flight. During this objection, Ruppel thought the skyhook explanation was plausible. The balloons were a secret Navy project at the time of Mantell's crash, were made from reflective aluminum, and were about 100 feet in diameter, which was smaller than actually what they had claimed it before. Much, yeah. Consistent with the description of the UFO as a large metallic cone-shaped. Since the Skyhook balloons were secret at the time, neither Mantell nor the other observers in the air control tower would have been able to identify the UFO as a Skyhook. But this was never proved, as Rupert wrote. Quote, somewhere in the archives of the Air Force or the Navy, there are records that will show whether or not a balloon was launched from Clayton County Air Force Base, Ohio, on January 7th, 1948. I never could find these records. People who were working on the early Skyhook projects remember operating out of Clinton County Air Force in 1947, but refused to be pinned down to a January 7th flight. Maybe, they said. The Mantell incident is the same old UFO jigsaw puzzle. Yep. That is the story of Captain Mantell, a victim of chasing UFO.
0: Yep. You know, I know they throw the balloon theory in there. Yeah. Uh, But... No, I ain't buying it.
1: Well, see, they 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 have the balloon theory, but they ha- they have it. They use the balloon theory in other UFO experiences as well. But they're able to actually pinpoint when balloons were actually uh, when balloons were released for those other ones. But they have yet to prove that a balloon was released for this one. Yeah,
0: yeah. and 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 yeah, it comes from Ohio, so it just happens to fit the facts. So it assists them with their
1: cover-up. I mean, it's a convenient truth, if you want to call it that, but uh, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. I, 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 I still don't think Captain Mantell would have mistaken a balloon, even a weather balloon, for something out of this world.
0: Yeah, and like I said, and after it was declassified, it was easy for them to say, hey, nobody knew, yeah. so they could throw it in years later and say, no big deal, because at that time it was no longer top secret or whatever.
1: And Captain, uh, Captain Colonel Hicks uh, from the Godman Field, he observed for an hour and a half. So you would think he would have it down in memory. So later on, when they released images of these balloons, if it had been a balloon... He'd have
0: said, hell no, that ain't
1: it. Yeah. Or if it had been, he would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, that is what I saw. I saw a balloon. Yeah. But he never said that. He said it still... He said to this day, it was not a balloon. Yep. So, yeah. I, I, I believe him. I believe it was a UFO that caused the death of this uh, Mantel. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. That in high altitude. And yeah, and yeah well... I mean, the UFO wasn't directly the cause of it. It was him chasing it. He just
0: got caught off guard
1: by yeah. his heart. He got too high. Too excited.
0: Air thinned out on him, and he's like, oh, crap. Before he could get down, he was done for.
1: Yeah, but he was only 26 when he died, so that's really sad. That is very sad. Yeah. But a very interesting story, and, and one that has um, you know, not been solved to this day.
0: Yeah, and the belly flop of the plane. Yeah. Very interesting. Very very interesting. So if he did go into just a flat spin, that means his engine probably stalled and he just came straight down. Yeah.
1: Mhm.
0: But he they are correct in their explanation that the heavy engine in the front would cause it to go nose first in a lot of cases when you lose power. Right, but You know, but who knows? Yeah, it's Was it guided to the ground by a power beam? Was it, you know, you never know. Never you could, know. You, There's there's all kinds of stuff. There are yeah, a lot of just, unanswered
1: questions in this story for yeah, sure. Into sure. that.
0: Yeah. All right, James. Why don't you tell the fine folks where they can find us? Absolutely, be my pleasure, folks. You can find us on the Fourthhand dot com media network, along with our sister project, What the Suck podcast. Uh, you can also find several other fantastic shows with fantastic people, and we encourage you to go there, give them a look as well, give them a like if you. You know, and listen. Uh, you can also find us on the big evil Facebook under State of Fear, and you can find us on Instagram under State of Fear. Yes. And we encourage followings. Yes. We also encourage reviews, comments. Uh, comments. If you like to research the subject for yourself and maybe add anything, uh, go under the post and add any information you like.
1: Yeah. Uh, let us know if you like it. We're on YouTube as well, so go listen yep. to our, our episodes on YouTube. I always forget
0: YouTube. Shame yeah. on me. And you can comment
1: and, and like those as well and subscribe to our channel on YouTube also. Um, and like you said, just uh, send us your reviews. So we want to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm ready to get back in the car, head on the next state. What about you? Amen. Folks, y'all
0: take care and we'll see you down the road. This is James. And this is Chris. And y'all have a hell of an evening.
1: Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of Southern Fried True Crime. I cover contemporary and historical cases and I love listener suggestions. And like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone and anything. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format, kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care.